one of the Christmas legends in my family that's told every year, uh, involves me. When I was less than two years old, uh, my parents heard a crashing of glass in the front part of the house, and so they were in the back, so they came running. They wanted to make sure that their precious 19-month-old baby girl was not injured or in harm's way with whatever was breaking, and they discovered me taking glass ornaments off the tree and throwing them at the wall. My first understanding of Christmas is it was a great opportunity for pitching practice. And so there are these stories that we tell every single year. I mean, every year, um, somehow there is a, uh, a side dish to the meal that was left warming and forgotten in the microwave. Never makes it to the table. Um, every year, there's at least one gift left in somebody's closet, unwrapped and ungiven. Um, Every year we, we laugh about the, the church Christmas pageants that we were a part of where miraculously all of the shepherds and wise men were from the deep south with their accents. Um, my mom taught school for 22 years. Now if you multiply 22 years by the number of students every year, by the number of Christmas presents that they brought my mom, who has kept every one of them, there's a lot of Christmas stuff that has to go up in the house every year. And my mom, um, it's not Christmas until the Christmas potholders are hung. <laughs> every decorative potholder in the house comes down and the Christmas potholders go up. Usually my dear husband Ryan is the one tasked with this job because Christmas cannot come without the Christmas potholders. Um, every year somebody at Christmas dinner makes reference to my granddaddy's two favorite subjects of conversation. Somebody makes reference to the subpar nature of the biscuits, and someone will ask in my granddaddy's memory and honor, did anybody get any funny books this year? My, my granddaddy's life and, and death kind of became a dividing line for our Christmas. Um, we lost him in 2000, on December 26th. So he had been in perfectly good health. He was diagnosed with lung cancer. He opted against treatment, and um, the cancer eventually moved to his brain, actually very quickly. Um, and he was riddled by confusion from dementia in the last days of his life. I spent Christmas Eve in hospice with him. I spent Christmas morning reading the Christmas story from Luke 2 to him. And we tried to celebrate Christmas as best we could that year. And then we lost him the next day. And that moment didn't just change that Christmas. It's changed every Christmas since. Because amidst the angels and the joy and the laughter and the presents and the food, there's a memory. There's a ghost of Christmas past sitting in an empty seat at the table. I imagine that many of you here this weekend have similar dividing lines in your Christmas. That those moments, those, those years that forever mark and change the way that you encounter and experience Christmas. It, it might be the year that you stop believing. Might be the year that you weren't able to go home. Or maybe it was the year you did go home and shouldn't have gone home. <laughs> Maybe like me, it's the year that you lost somebody. Maybe it's the year that you had kids and started believing again. But for many of us, there are ghosts of Christmas past that haunt us. 
It might be the empty seat at the table. It might be the fact that you don't have a home to go to anymore. It might be the argument that still lingers in the air. It might be the questions that will not stop. Are you dating anyone? Why are you not dating anyone? Are you still at that job? Why are you still at that job? When are you going to move home? And while the ghost that haunts my Christmas past is definitely bittersweet, for some of you, there's nothing sweet about it. It's just bitter. It's loss, disappointment, the words that can't be taken back, the wounds that just can't seem to be healed, the regrets, the secrets that are locked in the family safe, the, the uncle you can't face, the mom you can't love, the siblings you can't respect, the fruitcake that you cannot eat. <laughs> and what happens at Christmas is we bring all of the craziness of life, the craziness that ordinarily we can manage okay, but we bring it all together around one table and it gets compressed in this very tight time frame and everything gets exaggerated. And so what happens is that, that Christmas exposes and highlights and magnifies the, the circumstances that we can't navigate and the problems that we can't solve, the people we can't stand, or maybe we'll say the people we can't understand, <laughs> and the expectations that we just can't seem to meet. And we find ourselves trying to navigate the holidays if you're a guest with us this weekend, I just want to say welcome to National Community Church, all eight of our locations. My name is Heather Zempel. I'm the discipleship pastor here, and I'm just so thrilled that you chose to spend part of your Christmas week with us. And uh, whether you've been following Jesus for your whole life, or maybe you've stepped into church for the first time this weekend, or maybe for the first time in a long time, my prayer for you is that you'll walk out today with more hope, more joy, and more peace because you spent time here with us. And so what's amazing to me is that this weekend, 2,000 years later, people all over the world, millions of people are celebrating the birth of a Jewish baby. That we, we stop our work, we travel halfway across the country, we break our diets, we break our bank accounts in celebration of a Jewish boy that was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And we've got these four books that tell the story of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one gives us a unique perspective on his life. And so two weeks ago, or two weeks, yeah, two weekends ago, our awesome campus pastors talked about the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, which is told from Joseph's perspective. Joseph was this honorable, noble, godly man who found himself in a real weird set of circumstances when he discovered his fiancee was pregnant and it wasn't his child. And what we learned is that sometimes our plans and God's purposes are in very different places, but that if we align our plans with God's purposes, we just might get to be part of a miracle. And then last week, Pastor Mark told the Christmas story from the, the Gospel of Luke, which comes from Mary's perspective. This young, innocent, godly young woman who has an angel come to her and say, you're pregnant by God and it's God's son. This is crazy. Now, if some of the craziness that you encounter when you're home for the holidays is about your faith, you got to at least give it to them that this is crazy. 
When we say we follow Jesus, we are believing in a God who impregnated a Jewish girl, and that was his plan for saving the earth. That's crazy. And what we discovered is that sometimes the biggest blessings come wrapped in packages that we would have never chosen. And and then this weekend we come to the Gospel of John. Now John should be the most exciting one for us to look at because of the experience that John had. Now, John is the guy that more than anybody else probably heard the story of the birth of Jesus. Because as as Jesus was hanging on the cross, at the end of his life, at the end of his earthly life, he's hanging on the cross and he looks down and he sees his buddy John. And he sees his mother. And he says to John, take care of this woman. Treat her as your own mother. And he says to his mother, Mary, consider John to be your son. And from that day, John took Mary into his home and treated her as his own mother. Church tradition tells us that they eventually traveled to Ephesus and lived there. So when we think about the stories that were told about the birth of Jesus... John had first-hand account. John had a a, a front-row seat to hear Mary tell the story of the birth of Jesus. How many times must he have heard that story? After the life and the crucifixion and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the story of his birth had to be extremely popular. And Mary's talking about the angelic pronouncement and, and the pregnancy and the morning sickness and the delivery and the shepherds and the angels and the, the wise men. John heard the story. He knew all the details. And when he begins to write about the birth of Jesus, he doesn't even include the angelic visitation. He doesn't include the shepherds or the mangers or the wise men or the unplanned pregnancy. He sums up the birth of Jesus this way. In John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the way he summarizes the Christmas story. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God became man and moved in with us. The miracle of Christmas is that Jesus was fully God. See, we often tend to think that the resurrection was the biggest miracle in all of history. That the resurrection was God's checkmate against the plans and purposes of the enemy. But I would argue that the incarnation, the beginning of the story, the miracle of Christmas is right up there with it. Because we've got God becoming man and moving in with us. He was fully God. He wasn't a created being. He didn't stop being God in the manger. He wasn't created a man and somehow become God. He was God. The fullness of God was in him. He declared himself to be God. God declared him to be God. Even the demons recognized that he was God. 
In fact, one of the, and I know this is difficult to understand, and it's not logical, um, but one of the earliest um, fights, if you, if you will, in the church was over the nature and the identity of Jesus. And because it was so hard to wrap your head around the idea that he's fully God and fully man, there was, there was some teaching that crept in that said, well, Jesus wasn't fully God. He, he was created and then became God. And this teaching started to kind of creep into the church. And it was such a big deal that, that all of the church leaders were called together in the 4th century AD at a place called the Council of Nicaea. And there was a man by the name of Arius who was presenting his theological views that, that Jesus was not born God, he became God. And there was one bishop that got so angry, like he, could, he just could not deal with it anymore, that he got up, went to where Arius was presenting his views, and decked him in the face. That bishop's name was St. Nicholas. <laughs> the original naughty and nice list had nothing to do with who was getting what in their stocking, but who was a heretic. <laughs> he was fully God. And the reason that that's so important is that he was able to live a perfect and sinless life and in doing so was able to fully represent God to us and redeem us. He was not just fully God, he was also fully man. The word became flesh, God became man. The miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus Christ, God Almighty, became a fetus in the womb of Mary. He was born. He was a helpless infant that had to be cared for. He had to be Fed, he had to be burped, he had to be dressed. Jesus grew. He learned. He learned how to crawl. He learned how to walk. He learned how to talk. Has it ever occurred to us that somebody had to teach Jesus how to read? Somebody told Jesus for the very first time the story of creation. The story of Moses and the Ten Commandments. The story of David slaughtering the giant Goliath. The story of the Red Sea parting so the people of God could walk to freedom to the promised land. None of this in any way is downplaying the divinity of Jesus. It's elevating the miracle of the incarnation. That Jesus Christ, God Almighty, most holy, seated at the right hand of the Father in his rightful place in heaven, chose to wrap himself in the skin of his own creation, subject himself to the care of his own creation for the purpose of most fully demonstrating his love for us and to win back those that he loved. Because he was fully man, he is able to fully represent us to God. And he was able to fully pay the penalty for sin so that we could be reconciled. Peace on earth could happen. He was fully God, fully man. The miracle of Christmas is not that there's this baby away in a manger that's so perfect, no crying he made. The miracle of Christmas is not that, that Mary and Joseph found a barn with some animals and a, a feeding trough to, for Jesus to be born in just in the nick of time. The miracle of Christmas is that God somehow stuffed all of his godness into a helpless infant human being in order to fully demonstrate all of his love to us. 
so that he could represent us to God and God to us. See, when we understand the man on the cross, we've got to begin, in order to understand the man on the cross, we have to first see the baby in the manger and understand who he is. And then everything kind of makes sense. Okay, that's, that's kind of cool. Fully God, fully man, fully blows our brains. <laughs> but like, how does that help us, really? You know, like, how does that help us with the circumstances we can't navigate, the problems we can't solve, the people we can't understand, and the expectations we can't meet? What does that mean for us practically today? Well, here's the other thing that John says about Jesus. In verse 5, he says, here's, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. And then he says, and in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not Overcome it. Now, John is writing his gospel sometime around 90 AD. So we're almost a whole century after the birth of Jesus. And between the time that Jesus lived, taught, healed, was crucified, resurrected, ascended to heaven, between that time and the time John wrote, there were very, very dark times. See, everybody thought that the coming of the Messiah was going to make the world better. And yet, between the time that Jesus came and John writes his gospel, very dark things had happened. Nero had been emperor. He had burned Christians in his garden just to give himself light. He had sent General Vespasian into Galilee to decimate Jewish towns. The city of Jerusalem, the holy city, the city where God lived, the epicenter of Jewish life and culture and politics and religion had been surrounded by Roman armies. They had dug trenches around it to, to starve out the people of Jerusalem. One million Jews were slaughtered. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were sent into the Roman slave markets. The temple in 70 AD was burned. The place where Jesus had made a triumphal entry. The place where Jesus had taught. The place where Jesus had, um, had driven out the money changers. The place where Peter um, healed the man um, that was crippled. The place where the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was poured out. And the gospel went to all nations. That place was burned. John was losing family and friends. He was losing his culture. And when, he, when he's writing his story and he's grasping for words to try to describe the difference that Jesus' life has made in the world, he says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. His armies can't overcome it. Religion can't overcome it. Injustice can't overcome it. Greed, jealousy, confusion, family dysfunction, commercialism, Christmas potholders, none of that can overcome the light of Jesus. God became man and moved in. 
And he brought the light that the darkness could not overcome. What John is doing here, John's realizing he is not going to be thrown by what is happening because he is anchored by what happened. He was not disturbed by the darkness because he was fixated on the light. The darkness could not overcome it. Now what's, what's cool about what John's writing here, if, if we pull that thread, it takes us all the way back 700 years. Because 700 years, and at this point now, about 800 years before John wrote this, the prophet Isaiah said something very similar. In Isaiah 9-2, the prophet says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah is looking forward to a time in history when a light will come that will scatter the darkness. And Isaiah was also living in a very dark time. It was at a time in Israel's history that was called the Assyrian crisis. The Assyrian army was, was a world power. They were marching on the city of Jerusalem. These were very brutal people. They were actually infamous for taking their enemies and killing them, skinning them alive, and then using their skins to wallpaper their palaces. This is why Jonah didn't want to go there. And in the midst of that cruelty and, 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 and um, difficult, dark time, Isaiah is looking forward to a moment when the light will come that will overcome the darkness. And as John is looking back on the birth of Christ and the Christmas story, he's saying the light has come and the darkness will not overcome it. And all of history collides in this one miraculous night where the light has come and the light gives us a path. The light shows us the way. The light gives us perspective. The light helps us grow. The light helps us to see more clearly. And so when we face the circumstances that we can't navigate and the problems we can't solve, the people we can't understand, the expectations that we can't meet, it's the light that will guide us through Isaiah goes on to give very specific names to this light. What he says is that um, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I think a lot of times when we hear that passage or we quote it or we hear it sung, we just kind of hear it as a list of names, list of words, a list of descriptors. But this is actually where it gets super, super practical. When we're navigating the fog of the holidays, it's leaning into who he is. It's leaning into that light, letting that light shine in our darkness that's going to make all the difference. He's the wonderful counselor he guides us. He gives us a way forward. He gives us a path. When you encounter a situation you can't navigate this Christmas, ask God for wisdom. He's the wonderful counselor. James 1.5 says that if we, need to, if we need wisdom, we should ask our generous God who will give it to us. If you are facing a situation that you can't navigate, Ask God for wisdom. Lean on the wonderful counselor. And then wait 
for direction. See, a lot of times I'm guilty of asking God for stuff and then never waiting on the answer. And then I try to say that God never answers my prayers. Well, maybe I just need to wait a little bit longer to get the direction that he wants to give. Just waiting on him. Maybe it's every morning waking up and just waiting on the Lord for just a few minutes before trying to navigate that stuff on our own. I think when we encounter circumstances we can't navigate, we've got to make sure that we're talking to God about it more than we're talking to other people. I think it's a good idea when we're trying to navigate circumstances we can't figure out to lead with questions and not with accusation. That's what Jesus did. He's the wonderful counselor. Ask him for direction. Wait on his direction and let his light guide us through the circumstances we can't navigate. Next, he's the mighty God. He's the God of power. The mighty God. Some of us this Christmas need the power of an almighty God. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. How many of us are trying to hold it all together? See, we don't have to hold it all together. When we face problems we can't solve, we do not have to be the ones to fix them. We don't have to be the ones to hold it all together because Jesus is the one that holds it all together. We just rest in him, hide in him, find peace in him. See, sometimes, sometimes his power solves the problems that are unsolvable. His power is what makes the impossible possible. His power is what breaks the addiction and heals the sickness. And when we find ourselves in seasons of having to live in the midst of those things, then his power is what sustains us. His power is what gives us strength and hope. So when we encounter the problems we can't solve, we need to remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God, his almighty power and strength. It's looking back in our own lives and and seeing the moments where he came through in miraculous ways. Or if we don't have that story in our own lives, it's it's borrowing somebody else's faith for a moment. When we we encounter those problems we can't solve, it's leaning on the mighty God by declaring his character over the circumstances. By looking at the circumstances through the lens of God's character, seeing circumstances from the perspective of God, it's making sure that we're not just talking to God about our problems, but talking to our problems about our almighty God. He is the mighty God. Maybe as we enter this Christmas season, we just need to crack open these books and once again read the words of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and be reminded of the almighty God who stuffed his godness into a human being. Because when we get that, all bets are off. The the impossible is now possible. Power has come to earth. He's the everlasting Father. He loves us without limit and without end. If he was willing to go the lengths that he went to win us back, to have relationship with us, to restore peace between us and God, he is the everlasting Father with perfect love. I think a lot of times the 
stuff we navigate around the holidays is related to relational stuff. People we can't understand. People we can't control. People we can't manage. What if we begin by rooting our identity in the everlasting Father? If we remember that what what Jesus said is that any that followed him were adopted as sons and daughters. And when we realize that we are adopted sons and daughters of the king, it changes everything. It changes the way we view ourselves. It changes the way we view others. It changes the way we relate to one another. This Christmas, remind yourself of your identity in Christ, not your identity in who your family is, not your identity in your resume, not your identity in your job title, your salary, your role, or what other people expect of you, your identity in Christ. And then let the light guide the way forward in every other relationship in your life. As you're navigating people that are hard to understand, love them when they least expect it and least deserve it. Find opportunities to love people when they least expect it and when they least deserve it. See, the everlasting Father, this love of Jesus, it's something that we not only get to experience, but we're called to extend to others. Let the everlasting Father guide the path to relating to people that we can't understand. And then finally, he's the Prince of Peace. He reconciles all things. And like the everlasting father, like the love, this is one of those things that we not only get to experience, but we're called to extend to others. And obviously, given the chaos of the Christmas story, given the chaos of the time of Isaiah, given the chaos of the time of John when he wrote the words, given the chaos of our lives today, obviously peace is not about the state of affairs we live in, but the state of being we rest in. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the prince of peace. It's the character of God. It's the presence of Jesus Christ moving in to places of chaos. We're called to be brokers of peace, to be peacemakers. Walter Brueggemann said something that was really interesting. He said those that are peacemakers have to operate with prophetic imagination. Bringing peace into a situation requires creativity. And so we have to lean on the everlasting Father. We have to lean on the wonderful counselor to find creative ways to engage people, to engage conversations so that we breathe peace into it. It's about finding good in those that have harmed us. It's about ministering in the opposite spirit of what people throw at us. What if we let forgiveness permeate this season? receiving the forgiveness that Jesus has offered to us, forgiving ourselves where we need to forgive ourselves so that we can then extend forgiveness to others. When we find ourselves with expectations we can't meet, let the Prince of Peace bring perspective to that situation. I don't know what you're walking into this Christmas. It might be bitter, might be sweet, For many of us, it's bittersweet. I want to invite you today to see the baby in the manger who became the man on the cross, who counsels us, guides us, loves us, empowers us, and brings peace to all things. I want to remind us that the miracle of Christmas is that God came to us. 
I pray that this week you will have moments of unadulterated joy, that there will be uncontrollable laughter. I empathize with the tears that will probably fall for those who've been lost. And I'm praying for the circumstances that you feel like are out of control. But what we are promised is that those who walk in great darkness have seen a great light. And the darkness can't overcome that light. He's the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. God became man, made his dwelling among us. And he guides us, loves us, empowers us, and brings peace to all things. May you not only experience that, but extend it to others this Christmas. God, I I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come together and to acknowledge you, to worship you, to once again see the baby in the manger that became the man on the cross, that changed the course of history, that changed our destination in eternity. God, I pray for every person across all eight of our locations that you uh, today would breathe peace into their life, that you would bring counsel to their life, that you would guide them, direct them, that the light would shine in their life. Jesus, I pray that you would take center stage in our lives this Christmas, that you would be the center of our lives so that everything else would center around that. God, we worship you today. Shine the light in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.